Section thirty nine of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Agnew. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section thirty nine Madame Pasta and Mademoiselle Mars. I liked Mademoiselle Mars exceedingly well till I saw Madame Pasta, whom I like so much better. The reason is the one is the perfection of French, the other of natural acting. Madame Pasta is Italian, and she might be English. Mademoiselle Mars belongs emphatically to her country. The scene of her triumphs is Paris. She plays naturally, too, but it is French nature. Let me explain. She has, it is true, none of the vices of the French theatre, its extravagance, its flutter, its grimace and affectation. But her merit in these respects is, as it were, negative she seems to put on an artificial restraint upon herself. There is still a pettiness, an attention to minutiae, an etiquette, a mannerism about her acting. She does not give an entire loose to her feelings, or trust to the unmitigated and habitual impulse of her situation. She has greater elegance, perhaps, and precision of style than Madame Pasta, but not half her boldness or grace. In short, everything she does is voluntary, instead of being spontaneous. It seems as if she might be acting from marginal directions to her part. When not speaking, she stands in general quite still. When she speaks, she extends first one hand, and then the other, in a way that you can foresee every time she does so, or in which a machine might be elaborately constructed to develop different successive movements. When she enters, she advances in a straight line from the other end to the middle of the stage with the slight, unvarying trip of her countrywoman, and then stops short, as if under the drill of a fugleman. When she speaks, she articulates with perfect clearness and propriety. But it is the facility of a singer executing a difficult passage. The case that is of habit, not of nature. Whatever she does is right in the intention, and she takes care not to carry it too far. But she appears to say beforehand, This I will do, I must not do that. Her acting is an inimitable study or consummate rehearsal of the part as a preparatory performance. She hardly yet appears to have assumed the character. Something more is wanting, and that's something you find in Madame Pasta. If Mademoiselle Mars has to smile, a slight and evanescent expression of pleasure passes across the surface of her face, twinkles in her eyelids, dimples her chin, compresses her lips, and plays on each feature. When Madame Pasta smiles, a beam of joy seems to have struck upon her heart and to irradiate her countenance. Her whole face is bathed and melted in expression, instead of its glancing from at particular points. When she speaks, it is in music. 
when she moves it is without thinking whether she is graceful or not when she weeps it is a fountain of tears not a few trickling drops that glitter and vanish the instant after the french themselves admire madame pasta's acting who indeed can help it but they go away thinking how much more of her simple movements would be improved by their extravagant gesticulations and that her noble natural expression would be the better for having twenty airs of mincing affectation added to it in her nina there is a listless vacancy an awkward grace a want of benaissance that is like a child or a changeling and that no french actress was venture upon for a moment lest she be suspected of want of esprit or mien. a french actress always plays before the court she is always in the presence of an audience with whom she first settles her personal pretensions by a significant hint or side glance and then as much nature and simplicity as you please poor madame pasta thinks no more of the audience than nina herself would if she could be observed by stealth or than the fawn that wounded comes to drink or the flower that droops in the sun or wags its sweet head in the gale she gives herself entirely up to the impression of the part loses her power over herself is led away by her feelings either to an expression of stupor or of artless joy borrows beauty from deformity charms unconsciously and is transformed into the very being she represents she does not act the character she is it looks it breathes it she does not study for an effect but strives to possess herself of the feeling which should dictate what she is to do and which gives birth to the proper degree of grace dignity ease or force she makes no point all the way through but her whole style and manner is in perfect keeping as if she really were a love-sick care-crazed maiden occupied with one deep sorrow or who had no other idea or interest in the world this alone is true nature and true art the rest is sophistical and the french art is not free from impetuation it never places an implicit faith in nature but always mixes up a certain portion of art that is of consciousness and affectation with it i shall illustrate this subject from a passage in shakespeare polyxenes shepherdess a fair one are you well you fit our ages with flowers of winter perdita sir the year growing ancient yet on summer's death nor on the birth of trembling winter the fairest flowers o the season are our carnations and streak of gullivores which some call nature's bastards of that kind are rustic gardens barren and i care not to get slips of them pollux wherefore gentle maiden do you neglect them perdita for i have heard it said there is an art which in their pedus shares with great creating nature pollux say there be yet nature is made better by no mean but nature makes that mean so or that art which you say adds to nature is an art that nature makes you see sweet maid we marry a gentler scion in the wildest stock and may conceive a bark of baser kind by bud of nobler race this is an art 
which does not mend nature change it rather but the art itself is nature perdita so it is pollux then make your garden rich in gullivores and do not call them bastards perdita i'll not put a dibble in earth to set one slip of them no more than where i painted i should wish this youth to say twere well and only therefore desire to breathe by me madame pasta appears to be of perdita's mind in respect to her acting and i applaud her resolution heartily we english are charged unjustly with wishing to disparage the french we cannot help it there is a natural antipathy between the two nations thus unable to deny their theatrical merit we are said insidiously to have invented the appellation french nature to explain away or throw a stigma on their most successful exertions though that their art be nature we throw such changes of vexation on it as it may lose some colour the english are a heavy people and the most like a stone of all others the french are a lively people and more like a feather they are easily moved and by slight causes and each part of the impression has its separate effect the english if they move at all which is a work of time and difficulty are moved altogether or in mass and the impression if it takes root strikes deep and spreads wide involving a number of other impressions in it if a fragment of rock wrenched from its place rolls slowly at first gathers strength and fury as it proceeds tears up everything in its way and thunders on the plain below there is something noble and imposing in that sight for it is an image of our own headlong passions and the increasing vehemence of our desires but we hate to see a feather launched into the air and driven back on the hand that throws it shifting its course with every puff of wind and carried no farther by the strongest than by the slightest impulse it is provoking is it not to see the strength of the blow always defeated by the very insignificance and want of resistance in the object and the impulse received never answering to the impulse given it is this very same fluttering fidgeting tantalizing inconsequential ridiculous process that annoys us in the french character there seems no natural correspondence between objects and feelings between things and words by yielding to every impulse at once nothing produces an aggregate impression for every part tells separately every idea turns off to something else or back upon itself there is no progress made no blind impulse no accumulation of imagination with circumstances no absorption of all other feelings in one overwhelming one that is no keeping no momentum no integrity no totality no inflexible sincerity of purpose and it is this resolution of the sentiments into detached points and first impressions so that they do not take an entire and involuntary hold of them but either they can throw them off with their lightness or escape from them by reason of their minuteness that we english complain of as french nature or want of nature for by nature is only meant that the mind identifies itself with something so as to be no longer master of itself and the french mind never identifies itself with anything but always has its own consciousness its own affectation its own gratification 
its own slippery inconstancy or impertinent prolixity interposed between the object and the impression it is this theatrical or artificial nature with which we cannot and will not sympathize because it circumscribes the truth of things and the capacities of the human mind within the petty round of vanity indifference and physical sensations stunts the growth of imagination effaces the broad light of nature and requires us to look at all things through the prism of their petulance and self-conceit the french in a word leave sincerity out of their nature not moral but imaginative sincerity cut down the varieties of feelings to their own narrow and superficial standard and having clipped and adulterated the current coin of expression would pass it off as sterling gold we cannot make an exchange with them they are affected by things in a different manner from us not in a different degree and a mutual understanding is hopeless we have no dislike to foreigners as such on the contrary a rage of foreign artists and works of art is one of our foibles but if we give up our national pride it must be to our taste and understandings nay we adopt the manners and the fashions of the french their dancing and their cooking not their music not their painting not their poetry not their metaphysics not their style of acting if we are sensible of our own stupidity we cannot admire their vivacity if we are sick of our own awkwardness we like it better than their grace we cannot part with our own grossness for their refinement if we would be glad to have our lumpish clay animated it must be with true promethean heat not with painted phosphorus they are not the frankensteins that must perform this feat who among us in reading schiller's bobblers for the first time ever asked if it was german or not who in reading klopstock's messiah did not object that it was german not because it was german but because it was heavy that is because the imagination and the heart do not act like a machine so as to be wound up or let down by the pulleys of the will do not the french complain and complain justly that a picture is english then it is coarse and unfinished and leaves out the details which are part of nature do not the english remonstrate against this defect too and endeavour to cure it but it may be said we relish schiller because he is barbarous violent unlike shakespeare we have the cartoons of raphael then and the elgin marbles and we profess to admire and understand these too and i think without affectation the reason is that there is no affectation in them we like those noble outlines of the human face at hampton court the sustained dignity of expression the broad ample folds of the drapery the bold massive limbs there is breath and motion in them and we would willingly be so transformed and spiritualized but we do not want to have our heavy stupid faces flitted away into a number of glittering points or transfixed into smooth petrification on french canvas our faces if wanting in expression have a settled purpose in them they are solid as they are stupid and we are at least flesh and blood we also like the sway of limbs and the negligent grandeur of the elgin marbles in spite of their huge weight and manly strength they have the buoyancy of a wave of the sea and all of the ease and softness of flesh they fall into attitudes of themselves 
but if they were put into attitudes by the genius of opera dancing we should feel no disposition to imitate or envy them any more than we do the zephyr and flora graces of french dastuary we prefer a single head of chantries to a quarry of french sculpture the english are a modest people except in comparing themselves with their next neighbours and nothing provokes their pride in case so much as the self-sufficiency of the latter when madame pasta walks in upon the stage and looks about her with the same unconsciousness or timid wonder as the young stag in the forest when she moves her limbs as carelessly as a tree its branches when she unfolds one of her divine expressions of countenance which reflect the innermost feelings of the soul of the calm deep lake reflects the face of heaven we do not sufficiently admire her do we not wish hers ours and feel with the same cast of thought and character a want of glow of grace and ease and expression of what we feel we bow like gerdius and avigonus in the cave where they saw imogene as if a thing superior on the other hand when mademoiselle mars comes on the stage something in the manner of a fantoccanini figure slid along on a wood frame and making directly for the point at which her official operations commence when her face is puckered into a hundred little expressions like the wrinkles on the skin of a bowl of cream set in a window to cool her eyes peering out with an ironical meaning her noise pointing it her lips confirming it with a dry pressure we admire indeed we are delighted we may envy but we do not sympathize or very well know what to make of it we are not electrified as in the former instance but animal magnetized we can manage pretty well with any one feeling or expression like a clown that must be taught his letters one at a time if it keeps on in the same even course that expands and deepens by degrees but we are distracted and puzzled or at best only amused with that sort of expression which is hardly itself for two moments together that shifts from point to point that seems to have no place to rest on no impulse to urge it forward and might as well be twenty other things at the same time where tears come so easily they can hardly be real where smiles are so playful they appear put on where you cannot tell what you are to believe for these parties themselves do not know whether they are in jest or in earnest where the whole tone is ironical conventional and where the difference between nature and art is nearly imperceptible this is what we mean by french nature vis-a-vis -vis, that the feeling and ideas are so slight and discontinuous that they can be changed for others like a dress or visor or else to make up for want of truth and breadth are caricatured into a mask this is the defect of their tragedy and the defect and excellency of their comedy the one is a pompous abortion the other a facsimile of life almost too close to be agreeable a french comic actor might be supposed to have left his shop for half an hour to show himself upon the stage there is no difference worth speaking of between the man and the actor whether on the stage or at home he is equally full of gesticulation equally voluble and without meaning as their tragic actors or solemn puppets moved by rules pulled by wires and with their mouths stuffed with rant and bombast this is the harm that could be said of them they themselves are doubtless best acquainted with the good 
and are not too diffident to tell it. Though other people abuse them, they can still praise themselves. I once knew a French lady who said all manner of good things, and forgot them the next moment, who maintained an argument with great wit and eloquence, and presently after changed sides, without knowing that she had done so, who invented a story and believed it on the spot, who wept herself and made you weep with the force of her descriptions, and suddenly, drying her eyes, laughed at you for looking grave. Is not this acting? Yet it was not affected in her, but natural, involuntary, incorrigible. The hurry and excitement of her natural spirits was like a species of intoxication, or she resembled a child in thoughtlessness and incoherence. She was a Frenchwoman. It was nature but nature that had nothing to do with truth or consistency. In one of the Paris journals lately there was a criticism on two pictures by Giraudet of Bonchamp and Catherine Van de Chefs. The paper is well written and points out the defects of the portraits very fairly and judiciously. These persons are there called illustrious Vendians. The dead dogs of 1812 are the illustrious Vendens of 1842. Monsieur Chateaubriand will have it so, and the French are too polite a nation to contradict him. They, split on this rock of complacence, surrendering every principle to the fear of giving offence, as we do on the opposite one of the party spirit and rancorous hostility, sacrificing the best of causes and our best friends to the desire of giving offence, to the indulgence of our spleen, and of an ill tongue. We apply a degrading appellation, or bring on opprobrious charge against an individual, and such is our tenaciousness of the painful and disagreeable, so fond of we of brooding over grievances, so incapable are our imaginations of raising themselves above the lowest scurrility, or the dirtiest abuse that should the person attacked come out an angel from the contest the prejudice against him remains nearly the same if the charge had been fully proved an unpleasant association has been created and this is too delightful an exercise of understanding with the english public easily to be parted with john bull would as soon give up an estate as a bugbear having been once gulled, they are not soon ungulled. They are too knowing for that. Nay, they represent the attempt to undeceive them as an injury. The French apply a brilliant epitaph to the most vulnerable characters, and thus gloss over a life of treachery or infamy. With them the immediate or last impression is everything. With us the first if it is sufficiently strong and gloomy, never wears out. The French critic observes that M. Grodet has given General Bonchamp, though in a situation of great difficulty and danger, a calm and even smiling air, and that the portrait of Cathignot, instead of a hero, looks only like an angry peasant. In fact, the lips in the first portrait are made of marmalade, the complexion is cosmetic, and the smile ineffably engaging, 
while the eye of the peasant Cathy no darts a beam of light such as no eye however illustrious was ever illuminated with but so it is the senses like a favorite lap-dog are pampered and indulged at any expense the imagination like a gaunt hound is starved and driven away danger and death and ferocious courage and stern fortitude however the subject may exact them are uncourtly topics and kept out of sight but smiling lips and glistening eyes are pleasing objects and there you find them the style of portrait requires it it is of this varnish and glitter of sentiment that we complain perhaps it is no business of ours as what must for ever intercept the true feeling and genuine rendering of nature in french art as what makes it spurious and counterfeit and strips it of simplicity force and grandeur whatever pleases whatever strikes holds out a temptation to the french artist too strong to be resisted and there is too great a sympathy in the public mind with this view of the subject to quarrel with or severely criticise what is so congenial with its own feelings a premature and superficial sensibility is the grave of french genius and of french taste beyond the momentary impulse of a lively organization all the rest is mechanical and pedantic they give you rules and theories for truth and nature the unities for poetry and the dead body for the living soul of art they colour a greek statue ill and call it a picture they paraphrase a greek tragedy and overload it with long-winded speeches and think they have a national drama of their own any other people would be ashamed of such preposterous pretensions in invention they do not get beyond models, in imitation beyond details. Their microscopic vision hinders them from seeing nature. I observed two young students the other day near the top of Montbarré, making oil sketches of a ruinous hovel in one corner of the road. Paris lay below, glittering grey and gold, like a spider's web, in the setting sun which shot its slant rays upon their shining canvas and they were busy in giving the finishing touches the little outhouse was in itself picturesque enough it was covered with moss which hung down in a sort of drooping form as the rain had streamed down it and the whales were loose and crumbling in pieces our artist had repaired everything not a stone was out of its place no traces were left of the winter's flaw in the pendant moss. One would think the bricklayer and the gardener had been regularly set to work to do away with everything like sentiment or keeping in the object before them. Oh, Paris, it was indeed this thy weak side, thy inability to connect any two ideas into one, that thy barbarous and ruthless foes entered in the french have a great dislike to anything obscure they cannot bear to suppose for a moment there should be anything they do not understand they are shockingly afraid of being mystified hence they have no idea either of mental or aerial perspective everything must be distinctly made out and in the foreground 
for if it is not so clear that they can take it up bit by bit it is wholly lost upon them and they can turn away as if from an unmeaning blank this is the cause of the stiff unnatural look of their portraits no allowance is made for the veil that shade as well as the oblique position casts over the different parts of the face every feature and every part of every feature is given the same flat effect and it is owing to this perverse fidelity of detail that which is literally true is naturally false the side of the face seen in perspective does not present so many markings as the one that meets your eye full but if it is put into the vice of french portrait wrenched around by incorrigible affectation and conceit that insists upon knowing all that there is and set it down formally though it is not to be seen what can be the result but that the portrait will look like a head stuck in a vice will be flat hard and finished will have the appearance of reality and at the same time look like paint in short will be a french portrait that is the artist from a pettiness of view and want for more enlargement and liberal notions of art comes forward not to represent nature but like an impertinent commentator to explain what she has left in doubt to insist on that which she passes over or touches only slightly to throw a critical light on what she casts into shade and to pick out the details of what she blends into masses i wonder they allow the existence of the term clair obscure at all but it is a word and a word is a thing they can repeat and remember a french gentleman formally asked me what i thought of a landscape in their exhibition i said i thought it too clear he made answer that he should have conceived that to be impossible i replied that what i meant was that the parts of the several objects were made out too nearly equally distinctness all over the picture and that the leaves of the tree in shadow were as distinct as those in the light the branches of the tree at the distance as plain as those near the perspective arose only from the diminution of the objects and there was no interposition of air i said one could not see the leaves of a tree a mile off but this i added appertained to the question in metaphysics he shook his head thinking that a young englishman could know as little of abstruse philosophy as fine art and no more was said i owe to this gentleman whose name was merimy and who i understand is still living a grateful sense of many friendly attentions and many useful suggestions and i take this opportunity of acknowledging my obligations someone was observing of madame pasta's acting that its chief merit consisted of its being natural to which it was replied not so for that there was an ugly and handsome nature there is an old proverb that home is home be it never so homely and so it may be said of nature that whether ugly or handsome it is nature still besides beauty there is truth which is always one principal thing it doubles the effect of beauty which is mere affectation without it and even reconciles us to deformity nature the truth of nature is imitation denotes a given object a 
foregone conclusion in reality to which the artist is to conform in his copy in nature real objects exist real causes act which are only supposed to act in art and it is in the subordination of uncertain and superficial combinations of fancy to the more stable and powerful law of reality that the perfection of art consists a painter may arrange fine colors on his palette but if he merely does this he does nothing it is accidental or arbitrary the difficulty and the charm of the combination begins with the truth of imitation that is with the resemblance to a given object in nature or in other words with the strength coherence and justness of our impressions which must be verified by a reference to a known and determinate class of objects as the test art is so far the development or the communication of knowledge but there can be no knowledge unless it be of some given or standard object which exists independently of the representation and bends the will to an obedience to it the strokes of the pencil are what an artist pleases are mere idleness and caprice without meaning unless they point to nature then they are right or wrong true or false as they follow in her steps and copy her style art must anchor in nature or it is the sport of every breath of folly natural objects convey given or intelligible ideas which art embodies and represents or it represents nothing is a mere chimera or bubble and farther natural objects or events cause certain feelings in expressing which art manifests its power and genius its prerogative the capacity of expressing these movements of passion is in proportion to the power with which they are felt and this is the same as sympathy with the human mind placed in actual situations and influenced by real causes that are supposed to act genius is the power which equalizes or identifies the imagination with the reality or with nature certain events happening to us naturally produce joy others sorrow and these feelings if excessive lead to other consequences such as stupor or ecstasy and express themselves by certain signs in the countenance or voice or gestures and we admire and applaud an actress accordingly who gives these tones and gestures as they would follow in order of things because then we know that her mind has been affected in like manner that she enters deeply into the resources of nature and understands the riches of the human heart for nothing else can impel and stir her up to the imitation of the truth the way in which real causes act upon feelings is not arbitrary is not fanciful it is as true as it is powerful and unforeseen the effects can only be similar when the exciting causes have a correspondence with each other and there is nothing like feeling but feeling the sense of joy can alone produce the smile of joy and in proportion to the sweetness the unconsciousness the expansion of the last we may be sure it is the fullness and sincerity of the heart from which it proceeds the elements of joy at least are there in their integrity and perfection 
the death or absence of a beloved object is nothing as a word as a mere passing thought till it comes to be dwelt upon and we begin to feel the revulsion the long dreary separation the stunning sense of the blow to our happiness as we should in reality the power of giving this sad and bewildering effect of sorrow on the stage is derived from the force of sympathy which what we should feel in reality that is a great histrionic genius is one that approximates the effects of the words or of supposed situations on the mind most nearly to the deep and vivid effect of real and inevitable ones joy produces tears the violence of passion turns to childish weakness but this could not be foreseen by study nor taught by rules nor mimicked by observation natural acting is therefore fine because it implies and calls forth the most varied and strongest feelings that the supposed characters and circumstances can possibly give birth to it reaches the height of the subject the conceiving or entering into a part in this sense is everything the acting follows easily and of course but art without nature is a nickname a word without meaning a conclusion without any premises to go upon the beauty of madame pasta's acting in nina proceeds upon this principle it's not what she does at any particular juncture but she seems to be in character and to be incapable of divesting herself of it this is true acting anything else is playing tricks may be clever and ingenious is french opera dancing recitation heroics or hysterics but it is not true nature or true art End of section thirty nine recording by mary agnew